Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. The homeless population in Canada has reached over 235,000 people. That number doubles in the U.S. with over 553,000 people living on the streets. 66,000 of those are in Los Angeles alone. Today we're joined by Ken Kraft. He is the founder and CEO of Hope at the Valley Rescue Mission. They've created a couple of tiny home villages in Los Angeles to help those who are living on the streets and to give them back some dignity. We're going to hear Ken Kraft's story and how he became involved with Hope at the Valley Rescue Mission. We're going to hear about those tiny homes and we're going to hear how we up here in Canada can do something similar. We're going to hear that and so much more today on Connections. Our guest today is Ken Kraft. He is the president and CEO of Hope at the Valley Rescue Mission in Los Angeles. For those who don't know, what is Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission? Well, a rescue mission, and there's many rescue missions across the United States. Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission uh, was founded here in Los Angeles. I had the privilege of starting the organization 12 years ago, and we're committed to preventing, reducing, and eliminating poverty, hunger, and homelessness by offering immediate assistance to where people are at, and then long-term solutions to help them overcome any and all obstacles and barriers that are preventing them from being housed. What drew you into this world and what drew you to um, Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission? Well, a lot of folks come into social service uh, sector through education. Uh, I came into it more through failure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was a, a pastor for many years and, and had my own broken world experience and ended up uh, uh, losing everything. And, and through all that, uh, one day a gentleman asked me if I'd ever consider working with the poor and the homeless. And I said, no. And uh, he said, well, would you come have lunch with me? And he ran a rescue mission. And so I went and sat with him uh, at a rescue mission. And everywhere I looked, I saw men, uh, individuals who uh, really had had failure in their lives, and and it just broke me, and I thought, that could have been me, that should have been me, but for the grace of God, and um, through that journey, I just made a commitment, I said, God, if you see fit to use me to give people a second chance in life like you've given me, uh, then I'm open for business, and and that kind of started the journey uh, towards uh, helping people, especially those that are disenfranchised and those that have... um, lost everything and find themselves living on the streets. So many of us, we drive by people on the streets, right? And often we'll have this, maybe a lot of us might have this kind of air of judgment and, oh, well, you've just made bad life choices. And we never think it can happen to us. But the reality is none of us are really that far away from being in the same situation. Absolutely. And we find that with the average cost of a one bedroom apartment in Los Angeles of $2,200. Wow. It was nearly impossible for many people on the lower economic scale uh, to stay housed, especially if they have any unfortunate event. Uh, Someone loses a job, they have a medical illness. And so uh, the stories uh, are bountiful of of men, women, families that find themselves in unthinkable uh, situations. You know, I was thinking of a woman just the other day I was talking to at one of our tiny home sites. And, uh, you know, you just looking at her, you would never think that this woman would be homeless. And she even said it herself. I never thought this would happen to me. She lived in an upscale neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley. Um, she had her own business. Uh, she was doing well. And then somebody embezzled all of her money. Mm-hmm. And, she didn't have a social network to, to kind of uphold her and she lost everything, was living in her car uh, until we were able to help her and get her into one of the tiny homes and help her back in the pathway towards uh, being housed. There's a story behind each one of those people. 
Yeah. And sometimes it's just heartbreaking. You know, um, oftentimes we tend to lump everybody who's homeless into the homeless and until we sit with them. And so I, I encourage people all the time, get involved and sit with somebody, talk with them, hear their story. And uh, if anything, we really have to um, redevelop empathy and compassion because it's easy to judge other people uh, and forgetting the, the very difficult journey many of them have been through. I always tell a story. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but at a radio event once years ago, a homeless man took me aside and laid hands on me and prayed over me. And that was the most powerful prayer I have ever felt and like saw the eyes of Jesus in his eyes. Right. And yeah, totally changed my perspective. You know, there's something powerful when we can give ourselves to the least of these. And even Jesus talked about that. And uh, it's one thing to throw a party um, for people that can turn around and invite you to their party. It's another to throw a banquet to people that could never repay you. And when we're able to do that and truly love people unconditionally, serve people without premise, and and to just open our hearts and our arms, uh, not only is it healing for those that we serve, it's therapeutic for those of us that give. Now, you mentioned tiny homes and tiny home projects there in Los Angeles. Tell us a little bit about uh, your involvement with those and why uh, you guys have decided to start these tiny home villages. Well, Los Angeles has a very serious problem in homelessness. And unfortunately, we have one of the indubious titles of being known as one of the homeless capitals uh, in the United States, where we have close to 70,000 individuals that are living on the streets. And, and for those who've recently visited Los Angeles, and unfortunately, it's very visual as well. Uh, the numbers of encampments and those living on the streets. And there's been a big push from a federal level that uh, we've got to get people into permanent housing. And so even out here in Los Angeles, we passed a bond measure, uh, it's called Triple H, a bond measure to create 10,000 units of affordable housing, $1.2 billion. That was passed back in 2016. But unfortunately, the first housing, affordable and supportive housing units did not come online until 2020. It took four years to build the first one uh, at an exorbitant cost. And so the mayor recognized that this is not going to work long term. Yes, we need permanent housing, but in the meantime, we can't allow the streets to be the waiting room for permanent housing while it's being built. There has to be an interim housing solution. And uh, one of the uh, technologies and and innovations that has come along recently is these tiny homes. Uh, These tiny homes are manufactured out of Seattle, Washington, uh, but they can be deployed and and put in place in, in 60 minutes per unit. And so, yes, there's infrastructure costs that has to be, you know, putting the electrical and the sewer and all that. But uh, the sites, we've been able to open up four sites uh, so far and open up, we'll open up two more sites uh, in the next 45 days. But typically it takes uh, about 90 days from beginning to end to erect these tiny home villages in these communities. And these tiny homes, they're, they're, they're tiny. <laughs> there's 64 square feet, but inside each of these units, there's two beds, there's air conditioning, there's heaters, there's four windows, three electrical plugs and outlets, storage underneath the beds, four windows, and most importantly, there's a front door that locks. And once somebody comes on site, they have access to a full array of social services from mental health services, substance abuse, job training, job placement. And then we have housing navigators who their job is to ultimately help these individuals get back into permanent housing. So it's a good solution. Uh, It works. It's a FEMA-like response to an emergency and a crisis. um, And it's, uh, it's long overdue.
such a small space, but yet sounds like a big, like what is the difference between somebody staying at a mission and having a bed there or getting one of these really tiny little spaces? Well, um, the, you know, oftentimes missions uh, historically have built what's known as congregant shelters. uh, And that is where you have everybody under one roof. And for a long time, it was everybody under one roof, just on a cot. Uh, and now more missions will have individual cubicle dorm-like um, settings, which is great. It really is great. But unfortunately, you also have a lot of people who have been traumatized, um, you know, have been through tremendous amounts of abuse and sexual abuse. And putting them in that setting uh, because of mental health issues does not work very well. So the thought and idea of someone having their own place becomes a starting point for some to this journey towards ending their homelessness. I think of one individual who I spoke with recently um, who came into the tiny homes. Um, he's been homeless since the Northridge earthquake, which was 1994. Oh, wow. and a building that was uh, partially collapsed and was traumatized because of it and would not go back into buildings. When he looked at these tiny homes, he thought, you know what? I, I might be willing to try that. So when he came into the tiny homes uh, for the first two weeks, he slept with the door open and he slept on the floor with his feet out the door. Um, and, but now he's actually inside the unit, sleeping in a bed with the door closed. And so sometimes we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress and we're looking for what can we do to help people overcome maybe what might be the fears, the anxieties, uh, the worries, the stresses. And, and especially for women, we've had so many who've been sexually abused and traumatized to be able to have have their own space and lock their front door. It's very humanizing and dignifying and it works. We're now uh, moving people from these tiny homes into permanent housing. And so it's just part of the continuum of care. It's not the solution. It is a solution, but it is a solution that can rapidly be deployed and it's scalable uh, in large communities and small communities. And visually when the, the photos that I've seen online, the videos I've seen online, it's actually beautiful. These little villages are, are adorable. I want to call them. Um, it looks kind of like a board game almost, but, uh, but they're great. They look nice. They're, they really are. They're, they're, it's beautiful. Every time I've given so many tours and everybody that walks through, they're like, this is gorgeous. This is, I could live here. As a matter of fact, uh, myself and a couple other council members, we spent the night uh, in these tiny homes not long ago because we wanted to see firsthand, you know, what is the experience? And the experience was wonderful. I had a really good night's sleep. Um, but, you know, and the same thing happens. Initially, there's concern and fear um, when you're talking to someone who's been living on the street. Streets, um, but but also we, we we tell them look here's the benefits. The benefit is you're getting three meals a day. You're getting access to mental health services, substance abuse, job training, job placement. You have case managers, housing navigators. Uh, you have. Uh, um, hygiene trailers, and, and then yet, the, what are the responsibilities? Okay, there's no drugs, no alcohol, no weapons allowed in sight, but there's security guards 24 7, there's video surveillance. And so, when people come in, you know, first we have to overcome their fears as they're living out in encampments, but as we show them the pictures, like you said, and they look at this and it's like, well, you know what, I, I think I could do this. And so, at this point now, we're having no trouble uh, filling up the tiny homes and even have a waiting list. So there's really a sense of dignity there because quite often, I guess, when you when you think of tiny homes, you're thinking of these little boarded up little shacks sitting out in the middle of nowhere. Yes, they're a home and, and you don't want to take that for granted. But no, this is absolutely beautiful and giving people the opportunity to overcome and to feel a sense of dignity. 
Yeah, and it's community. Like I had one gentleman I was speaking with. He said, honestly, Ken, I feel like I live in my own private gated community. And, <laughs> you know, and another person said, "This, as far as I'm concerned, this is the Taj Mahal. And it's all a matter of perspective. And when yeah. you know things, see, when people are living on the streets, they're not living, they're surviving. It's where am I going to get my next meal? How am I going to go to the bathroom? You know, how am I going to clean myself? How am I going to protect myself? Once we bring people into this community, now all of a sudden they're safe and they don't have to worry about the basic necessities of life and the brain can start thinking forward what can i be not how do i get through today uh, there people might have heard the phrase housing first i forget all the stats but it really does work doesn't it when instead of requiring people to do certain things to get into a mission or do this or that to get them into a home and then like you folks do meet them with social services and things there it really works that way, doesn't it? It does. You know, we have to overcome the obstacles and barriers that are preventing people from being housed. Uh, even a simple thing like a pet. Um, we take pets. And, you know, but if you tell someone, well, you can come into a shelter, but you have to give up your dog. I mean, that's like telling someone to give up their child, honestly, and, and they won't come in. But we say, no, bring your dog with you. Your dog can live with you in this tiny home. And we have a dog run and, and we have, uh, you know, veterinarians that care for the pets and we have dog food and, and, you know, and then also helping people, you know, they're concerned about, you know, you know, um, just their, their possessions. Is there a place? And we have places they can store their possessions. And when we can bring people in and accept them where they're at, um, that really is the beginning process. And, and I think even as a believer, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, Christ accepted me where I am. And, and God, somebody once said, you know, God cleans his fish after he catches them. And so let, let's start with where people are at and then begin that journey towards wholeness and self-sufficiency. What other projects does Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission have going on as well to help the homeless population there in Los Angeles? Well, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, I had the privilege of starting the organization 12 years ago, and we started very humbly. There was a Lutheran church that let us use their facility, and we served our first meal. And I remember the first night we had, we had 22 people that showed up for a dinner. That was back uh, uh, you know, 12 years ago. At the end of 2020, Hope of the Valley had nine shelters, and we had um, 507 beds. That was at the end of last year. At the end of this year, we will have 16 shelters, 1,532 beds. So we will triple just this year. And besides the tiny home communities and our access centers and our job centers, um, we're going to be opening up at the end of this year what we're going to call the Trebek Center. And that is a brand new facility that was made possible uh, in part because of a generous gift with Alex and Jean Trebek, um, Alex of the famed Jeopardy show. Um, before he passed away, he gave a significant gift and uh, uh, that, that we used to help purchase a, a very large roller skating rink that will be converted into a 107-bed um, congregant site uh, to help individuals uh, in the San Fernando Valley. So you're definitely seeing huge support from the community out there. Oh, yeah. I, I've never seen support like we're seeing it now. And, and I think in part, uh, the political will has never been stronger than it is. Um, I think the community is pretty fed up. Uh, people are looking around saying, this is not okay. Um, we're not going to tolerate this. We need solutions. And so at Hope of the Valley, we've really tried to be part of that solution. Um, we've taken risks. Uh, we've grown dramatically. Uh, I mean, from starting again 12 years ago, we now have over 300 employees. Uh, and, and we are, are growing and expanding. And I don't want the 
the shoe to tell the foot how big it should be. I want the foot to determine how big the shoe needs to be. And right now, um, because of the need, we need to continue to offer more and better services. And the community response has been incredible. Um, we need more, of course, uh, just because, uh, you know, Homeless services is not uh, is not inexpensive. It's very expensive. Um, when you start providing all these services on a daily basis, just providing three meals a day. I mean, we're now you know, doing about 1,500 meals every day. So just food services, food procurement, food delivery. Uh, there's a lot of logistics to make this happen. But uh, I got to tell you, the, the greatest paycheck in the world is when you help someone then move into their own place and you see the tears rushing down their face um, with gratitude and appreciation knowing that it took a team of people but every day we're moving people into their permanent home what does what does success look like uh to you for people that come in like yeah i'm just curious yeah you know for me you know success is uh incremental and uh you know we we celebrate each step of the way uh, whether it's in when we look at this continuum of care starting with outreach and engagement and so what is success there? That we're able to talk with somebody. We're able to engage them. We're able to present to them alternatives and getting them off the streets. And then we bring them inside. We celebrate that success. And then we're able to provide the services. They're open to mental health services, you know, life formation services and, and uh, job training. We get them a job. We celebrate there. But the ultimate touchdown, the ultimate home run, the ultimate closing the deal is when we can help them gather their belongings that are there in the shelter and we get them in the car and we take them to an apartment or a shared housing place and and, and we're able to then help them be established and then continue to work with them to make sure that they have the wraparound services because there's nothing worse than someone who gets housed and then falls back into homelessness. It's devastating for them. And it's a, uh, it's not a very good use of, of resources. And so we have to continue to work with folks, helping them with budgets and, and helping them with uh, social integration and helping them get connected, uh, whether it be, you know, with the church or place of worship or, or other um, means of social interaction. What's been um, biggest, I don't know, lessons you've learned about faith or maybe how you've seen God moving over the years in your work there? You know, I, it, to me, it's such a beautiful thing because as a believer, we believe in the dignity and the value and the worth of every person. And so to be able to see people who've given up on themselves, um, unfortunately, the suicide rate is very high among the homeless because people reach a place of desperation. They're overwhelmed. They don't see a pathway out. All they see is the trauma that they're living through. And unfortunately, many people begin to medicate themselves through drugs and alcohol. But to me, when somebody can actually believe in themselves again, when that light goes on, and they realize they actually have a future, and it just reminds me that that's the heart of God that he has a future for all of us. And when people can begin to see that in themselves, when they can forgive themselves, when they can forgive others, when they can begin to heal from the trauma and the pain of their past, then to me, I I realize we really are being the hands and the heart of God in a dying and broken world. I really hope this conversation inspires others to do something similar, especially up here in uh, Canada Uh, I think that would fill a big void and need in a lot of places. 
you know, at Hope of the Valley, we are open to helping in any way that we can. We've been on many different conversations and, and working with groups and, and across the country. Um, and sometimes it just takes a, you know, a little bit of inspiration uh, and then some perspiration to make <laughs> happen but uh you know it's amazing what happens when when we determine to not settle for what is currently the status quo and to say no we can do better and we're going to do better and will you ever stop doing what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i don't see i don't see that happening um you know i thoroughly um enjoy what I do. As I mentioned, I was a pastor for many years and, and had my own broken world experience. And, and I had kind of given up on ever living a life of, of significance and purpose. I thought that was the only channel that I had and, and it, through pastoring. And then, but now being able to do this, I find just uh, real value um, and, and worth, and, and I'm very passionate about it. And, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that not only do I get to work with, you know, people that might be of similar faith of Christian faith, but I get to work with people of all faiths uh, and that we can work together instead of building walls or building bridges. And, and we're, you know, I can let my light shine and uh, be salt and light in the world. And uh, I find that, uh, you know, great things happen when we can engage the community and be part of the solution. For those who want to learn more about Hope the Valley Rescue Mission or just want to figure out, like Mike had said, um, want to start something like this up here in Canada, how can they go about finding out more information? I'm very accessible. Uh, they can email me personally. My email address is ken.craft, my last name, at hopeofthevalley.org. Um, you can always call our, our, our mission at 818-392-0020. And our website is simply hopeofthevalley.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.